understanding as I read God's word this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'll read from verse 17 to verse 22. This is the very word of God. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went, made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Amen. Please be seated. So this is a very rich passage of scripture. And unfortunately, today, I'm not going to do it full justice. Um, It it teaches us something about baptism. But it really is part of a larger exhortation that Peter has been giving to his readers. Um, In fact, if you go back to verse 14, he said, "...even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness." You are blessed. Then again in verse 17, again, it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. And so again, Peter here is clearly writing to encourage Christians who are obviously undergoing difficulties, hardships, even persecution as they seek to live righteously for Christ. You know, the whole Bible, from beginning to end, reveals how the world hates God. The world hates God's truth, and and it despises his sovereignty. And I hope that uh, as we look at this, uh, at the evil that's around us today, that, that our hearts grieve. Does your heart not grieve when it sees people spurn his love, or when they rebel against their righteous are against his righteousness. You know, it's an interesting thing to me that the world tries to establish its own righteousness. They're trying to justify themselves by their own standards. They will not submit to the Lord. And, and because we stand up against the world and its philosophies, the world hates us and it will seek to persecute us. And so again, Peter writes to comfort Christians. And as he does so, he brings up baptism as a way of of encouraging you to remember God's promises to you. That as you suffer in the world and as you go through your hardships and as you go through your trials, these are often brought on by our faith in Christ and our love for his word that even still he is with us. And so again, I think it's interesting that Peter likens baptism to the salvation that Noah and his family experienced during the time of the flood. 
So let's take a few moments to think about that period. Of course, uh, we go back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, on, uh, on, it, it, it describes for us the days of creation. And after each new day of creation, God looked upon that, that which he just made and pronounced a statement, it is good. Six times he said it was good, but on the sixth day he, he looked out and he said, it is all very good. God created this uh, world good. It was pristine. It was clean. It was pure. There was nothing bad about it at all. It was all very good. Everything uh, being ordered for its purposes and doing all that it was supposed to be doing. But we read in Genesis chapter 3 how man and, and uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and uh, their, their nature was corrupted then by that rebellion we call sin. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, mankind had been so completely corrupted with violence, they, uh, they had com- been so completely uh, depraved with acts of wickedness, and their thoughts dominated by defiled lust and depraved longings that by chapter 6, we no longer see any good at all. In fact, uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. The Lord was very sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And then in that same chapter, verses 11 and 12, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of the God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Chapter one, he looked on the earth, it was good. Chapter six, he looks on the earth, it is corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And the more men dreamed up evil in his heart, the more God's heart was grieved and wounded. And so his righteous indignation rose up, and he determined to destroy the earth. So again, before we're introduced to Noah, we learn that mankind's wickedness grew up so much that uh, the text says that God was even sorry he made man. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? God was sorry that he made man. Of course, God is not a man. And and therefore, we cannot fully comprehend God as he is. And so God very often speaks to us in language that we can understand. He condescends to our level and he speaks to us so that we can understand something of what is going on in his heart. And as he says, he was sorry that he made man. It means that he was sorely grieved. He made man in his own image and likeness. And now he's watching that image and likeness wallow in the filth of sin and depravity. And God was repulsed by their sin. And thus we see that his attitude towards them changed, and so he was moved to judge them. But what we read there is that when God finally rose up to destroy the earth, it was not a capricious act. 
It wasn't that God was just tired of man and he was bored with them. And so he impulsively decided to wipe them out. Let's try something new. God's anger wasn't because man was involved with some small slight offense or petty uh, disagreement that rose between him and them. No, his action against humanity wasn't in any way a hasty decision. God was patient with them. That's what Peter says, that God was patient with them. They got what they deserved. Their thoughts, their actions were so thoroughly debased that sin had reached its highest point. Now, my friends, listen. When, when, when men's stubbornness and pride continually abuse God's patience and kindness, why should anyone, fault, why should anyone find fault with him as he condemns them? But again, God is expressing himself in, in a human way so that we can begin to understand his, his intense sorrow and grief over sin and the extreme hatred that he has for sin. But as we're looking at this, we must not think even for a minute that God was surprised by humanity's depravity. The, the great evil which they gloried in was not unforeseen by him. It didn't come upon him unexpectedly. In fact, we're told in other places that God decreed all things. The Westminster Confession, the Confession of us church, uh, 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 says something very interesting here. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably or ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So here we see that God is not the author of sin. He doesn't force anyone to sin against their will. No, he doesn't, none of that's true. But nevertheless, he decrees it. Now, I know some Christians try to defend the presence of evil in the world by saying that God merely allows evil to happen. But again, the Bible teaches that God actually ordains whatsoever comes to pass, which also includes evil. We could see this in very places. First uh, uh, Timothy chapter six verse fifteen says that God is the blessed and only potentate; He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, there's no one higher than God. Nothing has a greater authority than Him, and so whatever happens in this world flows out of His sovereign decree. Amen. King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful men of his day. He had a tremendous army, and he defeated all these nations. He built up a tremendous city. Babylon was noted for its extreme beauty. The Hanging Gardens, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar looked at his power. He looked at his wisdom. He looked at his uh, artistic abilities. 
and he thought that he was something great. In fact, he even had a, 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 an image made, and he told people to bow before it and worship it as though he is God. But God brought him down. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's wandered in the fields as a madman. But after seven years, he, be, he regained his sanity, and he was forced to confess all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar understood and acknowledged that God is the sole ruler of the universe, and he does according to all his holy will. So again, if anything happens in this huge universe, God has decreed it even before there was a universe. Now with that, it's hard for, for us to believe that God decreed evil that he decreed calamities and disasters. But God takes that upon himself. He's not afraid to take responsibility for any of this. In fact, uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, God asked Moses, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God makes the blind. He makes the deaf. Listen to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 and 7. There is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I, the Lord, and he who does all these things. Amos chapter 3 verse 6 echoes that. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Again, God is all powerful. He is the sovereign ruler. And so since evil does exist, we must admit that he must have decreed it. And indeed as we face wickedness in our lives, and as we are hurt by the wickedness and the evil that exists around us, the apostle Peter brings us back to this time of Noah, where evil surely superabounded. And he uses baptism to remind us what God did to evil. See, baptism reminds us that the sovereign God, yes, he decreed evil. In fact, he's even ordained wicked men to persecute us. But isn't it comforting to know that those who seek your hurt or are ordained by God to do so? What that means is that God has a purpose behind it all. Evil does not have free reign. It is bridled by God. It is used for his divine purposes. We saw this in our Sunday school class where Job, in Job we see Satan go before God, accuse Job, and God says, go, but you can only go so far. Satan cannot do whatever he wants, but God 
reigns him in. Evil is bridled by God and is used by God for his own divine and good purposes. So yeah, he decrees evil, but he decrees evil for a reason. Joseph's brothers, remember how they wanted to kill him, but they ended up selling him into slavery? So uh, Joseph goes to Egypt, and as he's in Egypt, uh, he, he, one bad thing after another, but finally he rises up to, to great power. And he becomes, as it were, a savior to Egypt. And then Joseph meets his brothers, and he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In fact, his brothers did evil against him, but God did it for good. God decrees evil to use it for your good. Yes, God hates evil, but he has a purpose for it. Again, we must be careful to maintain that God is holy. God is not able to sin. He cannot do evil. In fact, he cannot even look upon evil or sin positively. But again, though he decrees evil, he's not the author of it. All creatures made in his image and likeness have a free will. They will, they will always will or they will always do according to their nature. They have a free will to choose according to their nature. God doesn't coerce them into sin. James chapter 1 maintains that God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone to evil. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. God hates evil. God will punish evil. Nonetheless, Though he decreed it, he's not the author of it. As the sovereign Lord, he is content to leave the responsibility of evil's existence and its actions to himself, but he's not the author of it. Men do according to their, what they want to do. When we read about Noah and his day, humanity in the time of Noah certainly did a lot of wickedness. God didn't cause them to do any of that. He grieved over their sins. The millions of people that died in the flood did so because they loved their sin. They were personally responsible for their sin. And the interesting thing is, for 120 years, Noah built that ark. And we're told in Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness. What do you think that he was preaching? He was warning them of the flood to come. He was warning them and warning them and warning them and calling them to repentance, telling them that they would be judged, but they didn't care. They wanted their sin more than they wanted God. So when God judged them, they got exactly what they wanted. They had no one to blame but themselves for that. They preferred God's wrath over his grace. Now, I know impious people will ask, uh, if God is so good and holy, why does he decree evil? <laughs> well, they go on. Is it, is it unfair that God should punish people who sin when he decreed that they should be sinners? Is God unjust because he created people who would exercise their freedom to sin 
and then destroy them for it? Well, those are objections that men have. But I often find it amusing that anyone would want to raise that objection given how small and how ignorant and how puny we are. <laughs> you know, I've met a lot of creative people. I, I've met some great artists, some great photographers. I even had a friend who's now in the um, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I've known some very creative people. But I've never met anyone who can create nothing or something out of nothing. I have never met anyone who can speak anything into existence. Artists and everything, they use what's materials that are already there. Men are, are weak. And we're going to face God who has all power, who can speak a universe into existence. How many atoms are there in the universe? Do you know? In fact, you don't even know how many hairs you have on your head, do you? You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, let alone tomorrow or 100 years from now. Why then do you think that you can bring God to task? Why do you think that you can stand over God as judge? When we come to this topic of God's decrees and even the decreeing of evil, we should put our hands to our mouth and become like a little child. We're not big enough or smart enough to contend with God. All our learning and our ability is of absolutely no help here. We need the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to even begin to understand this great doctrine. And so when Paul takes up this doctrine of God's decrees. He asks, who resists God's will? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Is there anything more absurd than for a helpless mass of clay to question the potter who puts all things together and gives it shape? It's ridiculous then to charge God with injustice. Sin. What ground do you have to condemn anyone to damnation? What ground do you have to choose this one for mercy and that one for destruction? Again, Paul's statement here is that you need to be reminded that you're not the creator. He is. And therefore, he's not under any obligation to make anything in a certain way. He isn't obligated to tell you why he does this instead of that. What we do know is that God is. Romans chapter 1 declares, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what is made, so they're without excuse. All you have to do is just look at creation to know that God is wise, he's orderly, and he is good. Isn't it amazing how God has created this? He created plants that take in carbon dioxide and releases oxygen, while he also created the beasts that take in oxygen and releases carbon dioxide. So plants and animals exist together in harmony. He created both the stomach and the food that goes into it. What we see in creation is that everything has some kind of mutual purpose. So... Why can't we think that evil has a purpose? 
even if we don't fully understand it. God decreed evil, and he ordained suffering for his own glory. And in fact, is God not made more glorious by how he overcomes evil? So with that, we come back to Noah, and we see that as the sovereign creator, God surely did what was right. Again, God has a right to decree the world to be as it becomes. And why should anyone complain that, why should anyone complain? Again, God never forces anyone to sin. He never tempts anyone to sin. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 says that he was grieved in his heart because of sin. We also know that God doesn't arbitrarily destroy the earth's inhabitants. Again, 1 Peter 3, verse 20 reminds us that these people were disobedient, even though the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. God was patient with them as Noah built the ark. Noah preached to them. They refused to repent. The ark was a great warning to them that they would soon meet destruction, but that didn't stop them in their sin. And that's exactly what baptism does. It calls people to humble themselves, to repent in their pride, to repent of their arrogance, to repent of their rebellious sin, to turn from their depraved thought as it as it reminds us that judgment is coming because we have sinned. Baptism calls all who sees it to turn from sin to a merciful God. Baptism teaches us not to forget that God is offended by sin. Silly men may want to criticize him for his decrees, They don't understand his decrees. They don't understand him. But God tells us without any uncertain terms that he is grieved over sin. And he punishes man only because they have sinned. Again, I I, I go back to Lamentations chapter 3. Why should any more a living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? As Jeremiah watched the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, why should any living mortal or any man offer a complaint in view of his sin? Let us examine and probe our ways and turn to the Lord. Baptism teaches us that we are all sinful. In fact, we are conceived and born with sinful, rebellious, law-breaking natures. God decreed that, but he didn't decree that man. I mean, but he didn't create man like that, did he? Man fell into that misery from his own rebellion. Okay, so we've been rehearsing that we can't blame God because though he decreed evil, you can't blame him that you broke his laws. You can't blame him that you rebelled against his kindness. That was done by your own deliberate choice. You want to do that. And because of your transgressions, you don't deserve mercy. You don't have any claim to his mercy. And if he condemned you, your voice can't complain because it was you who chose to rebel against God. 
But baptism teaches us that God, in his great mercy and his infinite love, has given to us an opportunity to be saved if we want it. Peter tells us that God was patient with that wicked generation. And he is patient with this generation. The message that was given to us in this generation, the message that we need to hear, the message that we need to respond to is, uh, comes to us from Christ himself who said, the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Did you hear that? If you don't come to him, then you will be cast out. But if you come to Christ, if you come to the true ark, you will not be cast out. You will not be thrown to the judgment waters. And where is Christ found? Christ is found in his church. Now, I know the church is full of hypocrites. I know the church is full of sinners. It's, it's full of contradictions. But this, nevertheless, is the place where Christ abides in the world by his spirit. And so we maintain that you cannot be saved without the ministry of his bride, the church. In Genesis chapter 6, as we wind down here, we're told that God grieved the wickedness of man, what the wickedness of man was doing. And he judged them. But even as he judged them, we, we're told how he was grieved. In Exodus, or Ezekiel chapter 18, God says, Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. And again, to prove that point, Noah found grace in God's eyes. Peter says that eight persons were saved in the ark. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three are their wives. It's all a household affair, which again forms the basis of our baptizing our infant children. God includes households when he rescues a man. When God made a covenant with Abraham, the household was included. In Acts chapter 16, when Lydia and the Philippian jailer entered into the covenant, they brought their households with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that the children of believers are covenantally holy, set apart for God. God deals with people, not just individually, but corporately, not just invisibly, but visibly. Which is why Paul or Peter also said, for this promise is for you and your children. Baptism is given to us that we may draw from it a supernatural comfort. When you're persecuted, you can look at your baptism. When you're harassed and when you go through trials and difficulties, you could be reminded through your baptism that this world and all its evil and all its wickedness has been decreed for a purpose. That purpose is to sanctify you. That purpose is to, to make you more like Christ. But it also reminds us that this day of wickedness is coming to an end in judgment. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things, including wickedness, including evil, including persecutions, that all things are working together for your good, even as it works for his glory. And so baptism points us to the cleansing of Christ, right? His blood cleanses us of our sin. And it saves us because it drives us to rest in Jesus alone. Baptism is a good reminder that something is wrong with the world. Man's sin 
exists. Man will continue to rebel against God. We know that. Baptism calls all people then to repentance. It calls guilty men to cower in the fear of death. Silly men again want to blame God for decreeing sin and evil. Okay, we'll let them do so, but they fail to understand how sin and evil displays God's great power and love. Again, in Acts chapter 2, Peter declared to those Jews that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, there's God's decree. Jesus died because of, man's de- or because of God's decree. But then he says, you nailed to a cross, Jesus, by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. God decreed Jesus' death But that doesn't rid them of their own responsibility. They nailed him to the cross. God decreed it, but they did it. And they are guilty, not him. And and, and he used their sin. He used their sin and their godlessness to glorify himself, exploiting their godlessness to demonstrate the greatness of his love for sinners. That may not be an answer for everyone, But again, who are you with your limited knowledge and your limited understanding? When you create a whole universe out of nothing by your own word, then you have the right to say, this is right, that's wrong. Jesus was crucified for sins. Your sins, if you trust in him, were were placed on him and he was judged and punished. Baptism shows us that Jesus is the ark and that while we're in him, the judgment waters will pummel him and not us. And God has victory over evil. We're told that God raised up Jesus again, putting an end to the agony of death. Senseless men want to rave on and on and on about the injustice of God for decreeing evil. Well, let them so rail. But again, they fail to contemplate what baptism preaches. Evil is conquered by the blood of Christ. God provides a solution to the problem of evil. And all you have to do is come and trust in him. The evil in the world and the wickedness that prevails and the suffering that you endure now, all ordained by God. But these things reveal how Jesus conquers all things. Your baptism, beloved, reminds us that he has taken you through all these pains, through all these sufferings, through all these persecutions for a purpose so that in the end he will bring you into new heavens and new earth. Don't let the problem of evil worry you. Baptism reminds us, doesn't it, that Christ is at God's right hand and he has all power to make all things work together for your good. Well, I'll just end there. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much that could be said, so much that was left unsaid, so many questions that we have in our minds. But Lord, we pray that as we face 
difficulties and as we face trials and as we face hardships, even as Job had to face these questions, how can a good God ordain evil? Lord, we don't know, and you, haven't, you have not told us, but you have told us that you use all things for your good or for our good and for your glory. You use even the decree of evil for good. Lord, that boggles our mind. How could you do? Well, Lord, you are the Lord. You are the creator. And we bow before you with our questions that may go unanswered. We bow before you, O Lord, in humility, knowing that we are but dust and that you are the eternal, infinite God who made all things, and you made all things very good. Lord, we pray that we would live before you then, remembering that uh, our trials and our difficulties have been ordained by you for our good, and that as we look back at our baptism, we can remember that your promise that you will bring us into new heavens and new earth, even as you destroy the very evil that troubles us so. And we thank you again that we have you to lean to. In Jesus' name, amen.